Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Hey, did you realize that there are four ways you can commit serious crimes in America and get away with it? Or or at least get a reduced sentence? Well, the downside is you've got to admit to it and hope that a jury feels sympathetic toward you. Let's look at the legal positions that allow you to get away with the most evil and aberrant crimes of conduct by revisiting the Elizabeth Smart case. Welcome to Profiling Evil, Season 3 in this episode on crime and mental illness disorders. Now, if you're one of my university students or a member of the Profiling Evil Academy memberships, thanks for supporting us and welcome back. And to those of you who aren't members of Profiling Evil, would you please take just a quick minute, hit that like and subscribe button, and ring the bell so you get all of our uh, notifications on videos that are coming out, or any other uh, items that we publish. You can also catch us on Profiling Evil Podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you're checking us out on the World Wide Web. Now let's go back to 2002 when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. I was working at the Utah Attorney General's office, and it was a couple of months after the 2002 Winter Olympic Games had come to a conclusion. I was sitting in my office in the Capitol when the news announced the terrifying abduction of a 14-year-old girl named Elizabeth, taken from her home in the middle of the night. Now, her home was just a few blocks east of the Capitol building. You know, it would take nine months and a series of miracles to bring that child home. Her story of terror had a rare but happy ending but her period of captivity was filled with horror and abuse. Now, the events leading up to her abduction didn't just happen on the morning in 2002. Months earlier, in the fall of 2001, Elizabeth and her mother were downtown shopping in Salt Lake City when they came across this transient, Mitchell. Mitchell was panhandling, and the smarts handed him a few dollars and offered him an invitation to work on their roof back at their house if he wanted to earn a little more money. Well, this beggar, who called himself Emmanuel, showed up a month or so later at their home, offering to do some odd jobs. Now, in their effort to be kind to the downtrodden, the smarts allowed this soon-to-be predator to get closer to them. Now, whether Mitchell's fantasies of abducting Elizabeth began on the street corner in the fall, the the time that they found him begging, or on the day that the roofing job was going on, I don't know. But it could have been later, but Mitchell put his plan into motion. You know, I often speak on Profiling Evil about risk reduction, and I always want to invite people to go back 
and watch my videos on the subject. So you can just go to the uh, to our content list and look up. Go to the academy or the content list and look up victim risk. But take a moment. Think about other ways in which the smart family could have reduced their risk and still helped this vagabond Mitchell without having him come to their home or even know who they were. I wonder if it was the hope of getting some cheap labor that put their family at risk, or if it was their kindness that led to dropping their guard. Regardless, the outcome was the same, and they almost lost their most prized possession. In fact, they lost Elizabeth for nine months. Can you imagine how long that period of time was for that family? who on many occasions were falsely accused of having something to do with Elizabeth's disappearance. We talk about that a lot on Profiling Evil as well, of how irresponsible we can be in social media and other platforms as we look at these kinds of cases, jumping to conclusions. Well, after Elizabeth was recovered, the legal battle, filled with obstacles, began. In July of 2005, The court found that Mitchell was incompetent to stand trial. His theatrics in the courtroom were capturing all kinds of media attention. And he was absolutely outrageous, shouting out scriptures, singing in the courtroom, commanding people to cease and desist. Mitchell's wife, Wanda Barzee, was also deemed unfit for trial at about the same time. And both of these predators were confined to a mental hospital. Three years later, both Mitchell and Barzee were indicted on federal charges of interstate kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor across state lines. As they took this child during those nine months and traveled down and back from the state. Well, hey, folks, as we're talking about these mental illness uh, defenses and the Elizabeth Smart case, I thought you might be interested in a couple of the uh, news releases that went out during that case to kind of refresh your memory about what was happening in the smart abduction and also in her recovery. And then after we're finished, we'll get back to the rest of this lesson. Thanks, John. Elizabeth Smart says she could hear search parties calling out her name as her kidnappers kept her hidden in the foothills behind her family home. And the 15-year-old says she was guarded at all times in the nine months that followed the knife point abduction from her bedroom. CFTO's Paul Blitz has the latest on this remarkable case. Home video has surfaced showing Elizabeth Smart during her captivity. She's in a park with her two abductors, all three dressed in white robes to conceal their identities. It's real. It's real. Relief and joy today from the 15-year-old's father. After nine months of torment and horror, Ed Smart has his daughter back alive. And the prayers of the world have brought Elizabeth home. Elizabeth spent her first night home in months watching videos with her brothers and sisters, even playing the harp for her family. She was spotted yesterday in Sandy, Utah, just 30 kilometers from home. A woman named Nancy Montoya called 911. Where do you think you see him at? I think he is right here across from Southtown Mall on State Street. The teen was with Brian Mitchell and his wife, Wanda Barzi. He's a self-described homeless prophet and drifter who once worked at the smart home. There are still many unanswered questions. Police who approached Elizabeth say she tried to keep her identity a secret. She said she was Augustine and she was here with her parents, um, at which point I basically said, I don't believe you. 
and I think you're Elizabeth Smart. Ed Smart believes his daughter was brainwashed, and he has not yet asked her the difficult questions about what happened. I don't know what her mindset was. I don't know what kind of hell she went through. Elizabeth did say she was taken from her bedroom at knife point and couldn't escape because she was constantly watched. The trio lived for a long time in the mountains right behind her family home, and Elizabeth says she often heard search teams yelling her name. Ed Smart says her safe return is a miracle. Well, at the same time of these indictments, a judge denied requests to forcibly medicate Mitchell. But then everything changed when Barzee, his wife, admitted her role in the abduction and pleaded guilty. She received a 15-year sentence, and she agreed to testify against Mitchell. By 2010, Mitchell would be deemed competent to stand trial, and the jury would reject his defense that he was insane. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. The man accused of kidnapping Elizabeth Smart nearly eight years ago could finally face a jury. A federal judge has ruled Brian David Mitchell has been faking mental illness and is competent to stand trial. Mitchell has been known to sing during his court appearances. The judge says that move was a contrivance used by Mitchell to dupe the court into thinking he couldn't control his behavior. Prosecutors are applauding the ruling. It took us a while because it's a complicated issue and there was a lot of evidence, but ultimately I think once again the system um, was successful and we ended up where we think we should be. Mitchell and his estranged wife, Wanda Barzee, are accused of kidnapping the then 14-year-old from her Salt Lake City home in 2002. She was found walking along a Utah street with the couple nine months later. She has testified that she was repeatedly raped during her captivity. Mitchell's public defender says he doesn't plan to appeal the ruling and is preparing for a trial to start later this year. Barzee has already pleaded guilty to federal and state charges in the case. Ed Donahue, The Associated Press. Elizabeth Smart, when she was just a teenager, she spent nine months in captivity. She waited nearly nine years for justice, and today it came. A judge sentenced her kidnapper, Brian David Mitchell, to the rest of his life in prison. In court, Elizabeth Smart, now 23 years old, addressed the former street preacher in person. She told him, you will never affect me again. He wouldn't look at her. He, she told reporters afterwards, doesn't matter. I am so thrilled with the results that came out today. The life sentence, I couldn't be happier. Today is the ending of a very long chapter and the beginning of a very beautiful chapter for me. That very long chapter that just ended began exactly one night after somebody took this photo. When Brian David Mitchell capped, kidnapped Elizabeth Smart from her bedroom in the middle of the night at Knife Point, she says he raped her almost daily, that he tied her up, drugged her, forced her into a polygamous marriage with him and his now estranged wife. Elizabeth Smart called it nine months of hell with a man she's described as evil, manipulative, stinky and slimy. Now he's set to spend the rest of his born days in prison. Alicia Acuna in the courtroom today, live in Salt Lake City for us tonight. What, what else did Elizabeth Smart say to her kidnapper when they were right there face to face? 
Uh-huh. Well, Shep, she took a deep breath, looked straight at Brian David Mitchell and told him she really didn't have much to say. But with a strong and clear voice, she did tell him that she knew that he knew what he did was wrong. And she wanted him to know that she had a wonderful life. It only lasted about 30 seconds. And afterwards, she told reporters that he's going to pay for what he did. I told Brian David Mitchell today in court that whether he received his just sentence here on earth or after this earth life that one day he will have to be responsible for his actions. And Mitchell saying the entire time he was in court. Shep? Yeah, he's done that before, getting kicked out, I guess, repeatedly now, right? Exactly, but the judge allowed it this time, and Mitchell saying from the time he walked in, quietly, but still, he taught, he sang while the judge spoke, and then while Ed Smart, Elizabeth's father, got up and told him that he had put his daughter through psychological hell, he sang while Elizabeth Smart spoke. But she told us afterward it didn't matter to her that she needed to speak to him for herself. And then she added this. I absolutely 100% believe that uh, Brian David Mitchell knew exactly what he was doing when, when he kidnapped me and all the events that followed. Brian David Mitchell has 10 days to appeal his life sentence. He highlights what Mitchell hoped the court would find and what some defendants rely upon as they try to convince us that they were mentally ill when they committed a crime. And I'll tell you what, you can think of a lot of crimes right now where people are saying, I think they're going to try the insanity defense. Well, there are four defenses based on this mental condition. Insanity, guilty but mentally ill, diminished capacity, and uh, mentally incompetent to stand trial. And although controversial, most states and the federal government recognize insanity defenses. Now, there are four states, including mine, that do not. They're Montana, Utah, Kansas, and Idaho. Think of the Chad and Lori Daybell case and where it might have gone if Idaho accepted insanity as a defense there. Well, the insanity defense is controversial because it excludes and excuses the most evil and aberrant behaviors. It serves as the perfect, I'm not responsible for my actions card. In reality, though, the insanity defense is rarely used and hardly ever successful, mostly because it's so difficult to prove that you're legally insane. Now, I think we all could agree that a person would have to be a little bit unbalanced to commit these horrific crimes that we read about. Many criminals suffer from mental illness, and most can produce evidence of this illness, or at least difficult upbringings and other challenges in their life. But should it be a defense? Legal insanity differs from medical insanity, and it's generally much more difficult to prove. The purpose of medical diagnoses is to cure the defendant's disorder, but the purpose of criminal law is to punish the defendant for committing the crime. So that said, we have to accept that insane defendants may not have control over their behavior. But as such, they do have the ability to form in criminal intent. They have to think it through and have to be able to form it. Without understanding their conduct is evil or wrong, by society standards, an insane defendant would presumably continue to commit similar kinds of crimes. And this is where I've commented many times about those murders that Lori Vallow Daybell 
and Chad committed on many occasions, or allegedly committed. Now, if she truly felt she was ridding the world of zombies, for instance, wouldn't she have been standing on a rooftop shouting to the world that she'd killed another zombie, rather than failing to tell the police where her children were? The insanity defense is also referred to as the McNaughton defense, or the test of right versus wrong. It is the most common defense in the United States, although it was created clear back in 1843 in England, named after Daniel McNaughton, who was under this paranoid delusion that the Prime Minister of England, Sir Robert Peel, was trying to kill him. McNaughton tried to shoot Sir Peel from behind, but he missed him and struck his secretary, Edward Drummond, who died. Well, McNaughton was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The defense focused on his awareness rather than his ability to control his conduct. To work, the defense must prove that the defendant suffers from a mental defect at the time of the criminal act and that the criminal, the defendant, didn't know that the crime was wrong. The guilty but mentally ill defense preserves the principle of moral blameworthiness found in the insanity defense while permitting jurors to make these unequivocal statements about factual guilt, mental condition, and moral responsibility of these defendants who claim insanity. It reduces concerns over fake insanity pleas by allowing the jury the ability to recommend psychiatric treatment rather than find a person isn't responsible for a crime. The guilty by reason of insanity defense doesn't solve all the problems posed by the insanity defense, but it does preserve the concept of criminal responsibility while improving some of the perceived defects in the defense. Now, diminished capacity defense allows defendants to attempt to show that they could not have and therefore did not have the mental state required for the conviction of a crime. Now, according to Verdugo Psychological Associates, the diminished capacity plea is based in the belief that certain people, because of impairment or disease, are simply incapable of reaching the mental state required to commit a crime. They teach that this comes up in murder cases where the defense is trying to get a murder charge reduced to manslaughter, using the example of a murder versus manslaughter defense. Now, a diminished capacity defense argues that a defendant is incapable of intending to cause death, so they must have at most caused the death recklessly. The defendant isn't saying that they're not guilty. They're stating that they are guilty, but because of mental impairment or disease, they're incapable of reaching the mental state required to commit the crime. Well, finally, the argument is the defendant is mentally incompetent to stand trial. And the law offices of Thomas C. Mooney shared this really cool information on their website that I wanted to share. They said, claiming that you're mentally incompetent to stand trial means that you're mentally incapable of understanding the actions that you're accused of and that they are a crime. Now, if the court re uh, approves a request like that, these kind of people could be released on bail if the judge believes they don't pose a danger to themselves 
or anyone else. Or the judge could go the other direction and commit them to a psychiatric facility if they think they might be a present danger to themselves or others. Now, to prove a person is mentally incompetent to stand trial requires investigations by mental health specialists. If these people are found mentally incompetent to stand trial, the court can order the doctors to use all kinds of invasive methods to try to make the defendant competent enough to stand trial. We're seeing that with Lori Daybell when she went away and was uh, went through a period of trying to build her competency. So here's my question for each of you folks living in the United States. Number one, does your state recognize the insanity defense? And, and what do you think about that? And, and for those of you who live outside of the United States, What's the equivalent defense called, and what are your thoughts about it in your country? I'm going to be looking for your answers down below, and I hope you'll take time to read each other's comments and respond to each other. Always be courteous and respectful, and let's learn together. Hey, I hope you're enjoying Season 3 of Profiling Evils Academy. We've been discussing criminal behavior in deeper detail. And I hope, if you're liking this, that you'll take a moment and hit that like and subscribe button and ring the bell so you're getting all of our notifications. If you like uh, podcasts, folks, please check out Profiling Evil Podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. And make sure you head over to ProfilingEvil.com on the internet and sign up for the BOLO. BOLO is our digital newsletter and it stands for Be On The Lookout. And hey, by the way, go back, watch some of the other videos in the Academy series. I really like nature versus nurture, so I always mention it. But what is it that causes some individuals to commit crime? Hey, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all soon at the next crime scene. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is TruthFinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give TruthFinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.